Good evening. Welcome to the state of our ocean. My name is Vipe Desai, and I have the privilege of serving on the board of Ocean Champions. I'd like to share two things with you before we get our evening started. First, it's a bit of a homecoming for me. It was an oceanography field trip while I was in elementary school that ignited my interest in the ocean. As an inner city kid in Los Angeles, my only reference to the ocean at that time was the movie Jaws. <laughs> Needless to say, I was terrified of the ocean and thought sharks were the only thing in it and that I shouldn't go in the water. A short time later, a shooting at my school prompted my parents to move us to Torrance, a little town just over the hill here. I made new friends, and as luck would have it, they all wanted to learn to surf. On the inside, I was terrified of the possibility of being eaten by a shark. <laughs> but I knew that showing any sign of fear would label me as a wimp to my new friends. I couldn't have that, so I went for it. I got bitten that day, but not by a shark. I got bitten by the ocean. It's been part of my lifeblood ever since. So the story here is that our ocean has a way of inspiring young minds. And we should do everything we can to bring more young people to experience a healthy and thriving ocean. The second thing I'd like to share with you is why we're here. Last spring, we held an event in Santa Monica where we put together a panel. We discussed how political hardball can save our oceans. The response directly following the event was overwhelming. I consistently heard from folks that, that attended that they had never heard about the oceans and politics talked about in this way, and I knew right then and there that we needed to continue building on this conversation. Tonight was inspired by that event. That's why I wanted to bring someone like Philippe, who is doing so much inspiring and important work for our oceans. Also here tonight is Senator Mark Begich. Senator Begich is a champion who is doing tremendous work in DC to protect our oceans. And finally, my good friend, David Wilmot, the president and co-founder of Ocean Champions, the only political organization that focuses on getting the right people elected to Congress. Whether you just love the ocean, are a student, a grassroots activist, fund great programs, or serve in an elected position. One thing we can all agree on is that we all want and need a healthy and thriving ocean. This is an evening to take in several inspiring and informative perspectives from Philippe Cousteau, Senator Mark Begich, and Dr. David Wilmot. Before we get started, though, I'd like to invite Dr. Jerry Schubel from the Aquarium here of the Pacific to come and say just a few words. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Aquarium of the Pacific. It's great to have all of you here with us this evening. We're waist deep in the Anthropocene. That's the era of humans, as you all know, and as long as there are humans, we will be in the Anthropocene. So our challenge as champions is to champion those individuals and organizations and decisions that focus on using science, and that includes the social sciences and also the arts and the humanities, and indeed all knowledge 
to figure out how to manage human activities in such a way that we can keep as much of nature intact as possible so we can continue to benefit from nature's ecosystem services. And that philosophy obviously extends to the world ocean, which is the single largest component of Earth's life support system. It is inevitable, I think, that with a growing population, we will look to the ocean in the very near future for more food, more energy, more pharmaceuticals, more minerals, more shipping and transportation, and yes, more recreation and aesthetic enjoyment. Being an ocean champion in the Anthropocene is a challenge. And like all of you, we at this aquarium are dedicated to championing protection of the ocean and marine ecosystems, and also those uses of the ocean that benefit society and that do not degrade the marine environment so that we will continue to receive these ecosystem services that are essential to all life. I want to give a special welcome to Philippe Cousteau, Senator Mark Begich, and David Wilmot, and all of you, thank you for having your meeting here at the Aquarium of the Pacific. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Jerry. Now, I'm gonna bring up Angela's son, documentarian, reporter, environmental activist, to introduce Philippe Cousteau. Please welcome Angela Sun. Hey, snuck in behind you. Snuck in behind you. Thanks, Vibe. Um, so, hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Angela, and um, I did a documentary called Plastic Paradise, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And if you think about it, uh, plastics was such a fantastic material. Uh, it was made to last forever, basically. So if you think every, almost every single piece of plastic ever created is still somewhere on this planet, um, if we don't see it, where does it go? Well, 90% of the floating debris in the ocean is plastic trash. And um, I started learning about this, discovering this in 2006, and I kind of just dived in head first. And here we are in 2006, oh, sorry, 17. Oh my gosh, 17 now. Um, and I'm still talking about it, because it, again, plastic never really goes away. The film examines uh, where we came from, uh, what it's hap what's happening now, and where it, we may be going. And so. If you get to check it out, it's on Netflix now. Um, I'm also a sports broadcaster and TV host, and um, I've had the pleasure of co-hosting uh, Al Gore's Climate Reality Project with our next speaker tonight, um, and knowing him and his wife, Ashlyn, for a few years now, watching his grandfather's documentaries and work in ocean exploration really um, inspired my interest as well into all of the things deep. Uh, he's the Emmy-nominated TV host, author, speaker, and social entrepreneur, and leader in conservation. He is the host and executive producer of Awesome Planet, a weekly television series syndicated on Fox and Hulu, and now in its third season. Um, him and his wife, Ashton, are co-hosts of Nuclear Sharks, which was on Discovery Shark Week in 2016. Philippe is also host of The Aquatic World of Philippe Cousteau for GreatBigStory.com. And as a special correspondent for CNN, he's covered a multitude of different things and hosted several award-winning shows. And he's a children's book writer. Um, followed, Follow of the Moon Home was released in April of last year. And in 2004, he founded Earth Echo International, a leading environmental education organization dedicated to inspiring youth to take action for a sustainable planet. 
Currently, there's more. He just does so much, you guys. Currently, he has a new travel channel series, and he just got back from Portugal, Scotland, Florida. He's going to be diving with sea lions soon, so we're super stoked to have him and super lucky to have him speaking tonight. So without further ado, please put your hands together to welcome ocean champion, explorer, and friend, Philippe Cousteau. Oh, we love Angela. Can we get another round of applause for Angela? She is awesome. And it, honestly, if you have not seen Plastic Paradise, it is on the must-see list, folks. It is a terrific film, and it's also critical for any of us that want to stay informed about these important ocean issues. Um, so good evening. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm such a big fan of, of David and Ocean Champions and all the work that they do. And, and I do want to thank uh, Ocean Champions. And I brought my wine up uh, so that we could raise a toast to that organization, to the aquarium, and to Evelina. Evelina, where are you for putting on this terrific event right here? We, Evelina, a good friend of mine, also incredible. Um, so I'd like to raise a toast to the oceans and ocean champions and, and all the ter terrific work that they do. Thank you for organizing this event and having us here. I'm half French, so any excuse to have a drink um, of wine. Now, uh, I also actually just found out, and I got a chance to take some photographs over there, students from uh, Santa Monica High School are here tonight, and, right? Uh, Vikings? Is Vikings? Go Vikings! They're the reason that I'm here, um, and the reason that I do the work that I do. I grew up hearing the stories from my grandfather, and being inspired by his work. And um, it is all about the next generation. So I'm really excited to have them be able to join us tonight. And uh, you know, before I get started, I want to take a moment to set the tone. That's my job as the first speaker. Um, you know, there will be three of us, as you heard. But it's very important to us you know, in, in discussions, uh, preparing for this evening. We really wanted to, being that we're close to Hollywood, we want to channel the spirit of George Burns, who said the key to a good speech is to have a good beginning, a good ending, and both of them as close together as possible. <laughs> so I am going to, uh, to do my best to do that, um, as we all are. And uh, you know, I, I also, as the opening speaker, I want to take a second just to address the elephant in the room so we can move on because I know that there's a great deal of angst. Uh, a lot of people have come and talked to me about it tonight, uh, about the current political situation as it relates to oceans and conservation. And, uh, and I wanna make sure that we understand we are not going to spend time discussing that uh, tonight. Really, tonight is about exploring the hope and opportunity that exists going forward, and that is our theme. Because ladies and gentlemen, there is an extraordinary amount of hope and opportunity as it relates to the oceans, and I have no doubt that we will achieve great things in the coming years, no matter who is in office. And you might ask me, where does this optimism come from? Well, to, uh, to give you a sense, I want to tell you a story. As a storyteller, I thought I'd start with that. Because when most people think of Cousteau, they think of a tall, uh, lanky Frenchman with a red hat and a Speedo who talk like this. Um, they think of a man who invented scuba diving and submersibles and pioneered ocean conservation, a filmmaker, a poet, a writer. That's what most people think of. But me? I think of a problem solver. 
of a tinkerer, of a man who found joy and inspiration in the ocean. You see, before his adventures into the sea, a lot of people don't realize my grandfather actually wanted to be a pilot in the French naval aviation program. Unfortunately, he broke his, his back in a car accident driving on the windy roads of southern France and was immediately washed out of the naval aviation program. And his dreams were dashed, um, and it was a, certainly a tragedy, and he was told to swim in the Mediterranean every day to rebuild his strength. And a, a captain of his, a man named Philippe Taillez, gave him a pair of goggles, and he opened his eyes for the first time looking under him, was so amazed by what he saw, he became an avid freediver, uh, snorkeler, but was frustrated by the limited amount of time that he could spend underwater. And so he met an engineer, and they miniaturized a valve and created scuba diving to solve that problem. And he didn't start out trying to save the oceans. He simply wanted to spend more time underwater. And so after tinkering and, and working, he also realized that he wanted to share stories about what he saw with the world. And so he worked and created underwater cameras and worked with people um, to create strobes and submersibles, and the list goes on and on and on. He simply sought to solve one problem and then move on to the next. And in so doing, he changed the world. My grandfather taught me that true innovation, true achievement, is born of adversity. And while there's a significant amount of adversity and challenges in this world, tonight, as I said earlier, it's about solutions. And as I said, solutions do exist. Now, Angela referenced a, a film that we did with Discovery Channel this past summer uh, uh, for Shark Week called Nuclear Sharks. And that was an expedition out to the Marshall Islands to Bikini Atoll. And some of you may remember that Bikini was where in the 1950s and 60s we conducted a great deal of our nuclear testing in the United States, including the largest bomb we ever detonated, Castle Bravo, at 15 megatons. It was a thousand times stronger than the bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, particularly in Bikini, there were over 20 of these tests that killed everything above and beneath the surface of the water. And when we stopped the testing, because of the radiation, Bikini became a de facto marine reserve. And we went back 70 years later and were astounded by the amount of life that we found there. We'd get in the water to be surrounded by 100 gray reef sharks at any one time. And what struck me about that experience was that it was such a powerful example of nature's incredible ability to renew itself even in the face of the worst fire and brimstone that humanity can engineer, literally, it renewed itself. But, you know, protecting sharks, uh, protecting uh, uh, the oceans is not just about sharks and coral reefs. It's about people and people's desire for dignity and purpose that comes with the ability to earn a living and to feed your family. I had an experience in a place called Cabo uh, Pulmo, which is about an hour and a half. I'm sure some of you have been there before. It's one of my favorite places to go diving. And it's about an hour and a half north of Cabo San Lucas uh, on the Baja Peninsula. And it, is, it embodies just about everything that is, that is possible 
when we talk about protecting the ocean. Uh, it is a 70 square kilometer marine reserve. And the, the genesis of that, of that story, of that place, is really remarkable. Because not unlike dozens of, of communities that you find up and down the Baja Peninsula, um, 30 years ago, the patriarch of the community, Juan Castro, was fishing, like everyone else. And um, unfortunately, the fishing that had sustained that community for generations was declining. And every day, they had to venture further and further offshore, not guaranteed that they would even catch fish. And like any good father, Juan was worried about being able to feed his family, provide for his children, and their opportunity and their ability to provide for their children. Until one hot summer day, a bunch of gringos drove up from Cabo San Lucas and asked him to take them out in his fishing boat. But not to go fishing. They wanted to go scuba diving. Now, Juan had never seen anything like this. And after the divers surfaced, they gave him a pair of goggles, and he put those on, and they invited him in to look into the water. And he was so stunned by what he saw, so amazed, it took his breath away. And the beauty that he witnessed gave him an idea. And after several years of working with the local community, with NGOs, they established Cabo Pulmo National Marine Park, which is one of the most well-managed and effective marine reserves. It is 70 square kilometers. They said no take marine reserve, no fishing allowed. And um, as evidenced by the research from Scripps, there has been up to a 1,000% increase in life on that reef. And when you talk to Juan and his children and now his grandchildren, you hear a common refrain that they're proud of what they've achieved, not because of the recovery of the health of the reef, though that matters too, but they're most proud because in the words of one of his sons, Mario, they have something they can pass on their children that will only increase in value. And that brings me to the central tenet of my time with you this evening. People seek dignity, purpose, and security for themselves and their families. And if they don't have that, all the talk of coral reefs and pictures of polar bears and blue whales and elephants in the world don't matter. Too often, we have catastrophized the issues around the ocean, around the environment and conservation. I was at a conference um, on Monday, speaking at a conference on Monday, and Governor Martin O'Malley was there as well, and he put it perfectly when he said, milk and honey makes a much better story. So instead, I believe we must take a playbook, page from my grandfather's playbook, and reframe the oceans as a source of joy, adventure, as a source of solutions for global problems, and an opportunity to create dignity and hope for people and their families. And while it's easy to poke fun and lament at the gridlock in Washington, D.C., as Will Rogers summed up so well when he said, I don't make jokes, I just watch the government and report the facts. This work is too important to assume that we can achieve lasting change without Congress. My father and grandfather raised me with a simple vision, folks, that every child born has the right to live on a planet where they can drink clean water, where they can breathe fresh air and walk on green grass under a blue sky. And if we were to achieve that vision, 
and build the world that we all hope for, there are 535 men and women in Washington, D.C., whose help we need to make it happen. And that's what tonight is all about and what Ocean Champions is all about. And I invite you all to join in that incredible work. And I'm delighted to be here this evening. And I thank you for your commitment to our water planet. So cheers. Thank you. I have actually a very small role here. Um, I am here. My husband is the United States Senator from Rhode Island. Uh, we are the ocean state. Uh, but I am here to introduce uh, Senator Mark Begich, from, a senator from Alaska. And uh, Rhode Island is actually, I did my math today, 550 times Rhode Islands would fit into the state of Alaska. Uh, but despite the fact that we're incredibly different in size, we actually have one thing very much in common, which is that really we both are ocean states. Our communities, our culture, our economies are incredibly tied very closely to the ocean. And uh, Mark and my husband have actually worked very closely on a number of ocean issues and made a real difference in the US Senate. And I just want to give you one example, which is their work on the treaties for what's called IUU fishing, uh, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, or, or commonly known as pirate fishing. In some, it's virtually impossible to manage a fishery if people are not doing it legally and not playing by the rules. And in one day, they passed four treaties that are really having worldwide impact to address this problem. Just to give you the context of what a big deal it is, especially with things being bogged down in Washington to pass four treaties, the previous four treaties, it had taken nine years to pass, and they passed four in one day. Mark, maybe you can talk about how you actually sort of snuck that in there. Um, but anyway, I'm really here to thank Mark for his passionate work on uh, the oceans and as an ocean champion, and to introduce him and say, uh, he's great. Let's hear from him. Um, thank you very much. It's actually, you summarized the story. It's actually an amazing story. So Sheldon, Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Whitehouse and I, uh, he was one of the first people that I got to meet when I came to the Senate in 09. And his interests in oceans and a lot of other issues were common to mine. But I remember this. We had been working on these treaties. And one day he comes to me and he says, why don't we just go down to the floor of the Senate and just bring them up, and they call it uh, UC, unanimous consent. No one objects, they pass, which is like unheard of, unless you actually orchestrate it with the other side. And as a new, innocent, naive member, I said, sure, let's do that. Uh, we go down to the floor, 
We talked for not that long, which is very unusual for senators, um, and we found out that no one was coming down to oppose us. And we thought, let's ask for UC and see what happens. One after the other, boom, 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 all passed. No one objected. I turned to the Senator Whitehouse, I said, we're gonna do this more, let's figure out some other bills, maybe healthcare, maybe, you know. <laughs> Not really. Um, but it was an amazing moment in time. And that, I guess, as I'm listening to the message that Philippe said on hope and opportunity, there is always opportunity, but you have to look for it. And, you know, same as Philippe, I'm not interested in talking about the politics of where we are today, because I will tell you, people do come up to me and say, what's going to happen? What does this mean? It is not as bad as people think because there's always folks out there that are trying to figure out what are those opportunities? What are we gonna to do to make America, this country, this world a better place? And there's no better issue than around oceans because you know, when you talk about uh, the waste dump, the plastic and all the accumulation in the Pacific, you know, that's not a Democrat issue, that's not a Republican issue, that's not a Libertarian issue, that's an issue of survival as a, as a world. We don't solve these problems. In Alaska, which has an enormous amount of coastland and incredible fisheries, which are now the most sustainable fisheries in the world, it is about that survival of how do you make sure what you do in policy has a direct impact. And when the stories are being told, um, when the story is being told about the folks down south, I think about our Alaska Native people and the fisheries and the value of that. It is not a question of is it important this year or next year. It is a question of survival. They live off of the land. They live off the ocean. I actually joked with many different people of regulators in the government when we would argue over how something should be regulated. I said, well, I'll rather turn it over to the elders in my state who have been managing fisheries for 10,000 years and surviving. That's a good measurement of successful management if they still are living today, that their fish supply still exists today. And so when you think about oceans, and this is why, as someone born and raised in Alaska, I see the value of it, not only from all that was talked about just a few minutes ago, but also what the future holds. You know, as we continue to look at what's happening in the Arctic and the potential, you know, no fisheries is allowed up there at this point. But what does that mean? What's it going to be? What's, what is the opportunity to manage that the right way? You know, Alaska used to be in the 1970s, for anyone that wants to go back in history, our fisheries and the protection of the oceans was, uh, I mean, literally, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to describe it. You know, uh, I've only been drinking wine, not beer, so I'm trying to be careful here. Um, but it was a rough business. Uh, first out, got whatever they could get. And literally, you would have violent acts. We would have multiple problems out on the ocean because it was just a constant get what you can, strip it for what you can, and get the money for the fisheries. Alaska realized, because in our constitution of Alaska, it is required to manage our resources for the benefit of the people in abundance, meaning not to strip it down to nothing and then leave it but how to manage it for generations. In the Alaska Native culture, it's how do you manage and what do you do for the seven generations to come. So that thought came through Alaskans. We figured out we have to manage this differently. The Magnuson-Stevens Act was an incredible piece of legislation that constantly needs revisions, but the end result 
has now made sure that Alaska fisheries are not only managed during the season, but year-round, and they're the most sustainable in the world because of that. And that is the kind of thinking that is the opportunity and the forward thinking that has to happen. When you think about Congress as confused and slow and dysfunctional as it is, the most important thing in my belief and when I became a senator was the work that Ocean Champions was doing. They never, it was like every time they'd meet with me, it was, it could be a really bad day, but it was always about how great it is, how much opportunity there is. And they would tell me these stories about we got to do this, we got to do that. And when you listened to their pitch, it was not about, again, a partisan pitch. It was about this is why it's important. And when you think about where we are in this world today and the work that needs to be done, it doesn't matter if it's on oceans or any kind of subject matter you think of, we need people who are going to step over the line to push the envelope. The kind of thing we did, Sheldon and I, when we walked to the floor, when people told us, you're crazy, don't do that, you'll be ruled out of order, you push it because you have champions out there. What Ocean Champions does a lot of times, and I saw it firsthand, they would recognize those people who would walk that line, push over the edge, find out those issues they can work on. And I think of you know, the money that's now uh, put into uh, research of acidification, electron electronic monitoring that will improve our ability to understand our fisheries and patterns, uh, the work on MSA, uh, Magnuson-Stevens Act, um, the list or, or plastics in the water, or the small plastic beads, that was a big issue. Again, Ocean Champions never sits around and says, oh, it's dysfunctional in Washington, we're not going to do anything this year, let's just wait. They're always kind of pushing the envelope because the opportunities when they happen, you have to be ready and ready to move forward because that's how Congress works. And they always were there. When we did, again, the, uh, and I always like to call it, my son calls it pirates. Uh, he's 14 now. He doesn't say that, but back then he did. But the pirate fishing, it was the most abusive fishing that you could see. I mean, in Alaska, we saw it, billions of fisheries just stripped out and no care about what the impact would be about moving that fish off the, off the ocean floor and what would happen next to the next generation of fishermen and people who wanted to utilize that fish for their ability to live. These regulations make a big difference. These treaties make a big difference. But again, having an organization and being the political organization that it is, it recognizes, not only does it advocate, it recognizes the people who are doing the work. Because in Washington, you don't really get people that come and say to your office, you're doing a great job. Usually 90% or 99% of the people are upset about something. They come and you can see them. I've seen them many times. You're in a grocery store and you're doing your thing and you look out of the corner of your eye, you try not to make eye contact because the minute you do, it's like, it's like laser lock-in and they're on a mission. And their mission is going to tell you everything you have done wrong. And then they'll tell you why they need you to do something. But what Ocean Champions does is they do it in a different way that I think has been the most productive way to deal with ocean issues. Not only do they recognize the issue, but they try to recognize how you as the person in public policy are doing and what you can do. So even though where you stand in this last election for or against whoever the candidates were, the work of the oceans doesn't stop. 
The research that needs to be done can't be done one year and stop the next. It has to be continued because that's how you get good data to determine fishery patterns. And when waters are warming in Alaska and how fish are moving more north and south, what that means to our fishing and capacity. What it means when you now in Alaska, for example, declare a fisheries disaster, it used to be because of some man-made activity. And in reality, it is now because the impact of climate change is changing the temperatures of the water and impacting fisheries to the point where in some of our communities, the king salmon is an important part of the nutritional values of what Alaska Native individuals consume. When they can no longer consume that as part of their diet, it has a huge impact. And of course, we all think, and I say this collectively, well, we'll just you know, figure out how to give cash to the economy and they go down to the grocery store, if they have one, and buy food product. That does not work. It does not work because their history and their culture and their dietary requirements. So we have to think about this not only from preserving oceans for many other generations, but people who live and die off the ocean in the sense of their survival. You know, when I think about, when they asked me if I would come down and speak, and I took the red eye to get down here. I got here at 6 in the morning, and I said, this is one group, and I sit as their chair of their advisory board. It is one group without hesitation when they called. I said, I would absolutely be happy to help. Because I think there's a lot of people who don't understand what the oceans are about. One of the things I would hope this session, as people move forward, as you, I hope, get more engaged. Some of you are probably not as much engaged as some others, maybe on oceans issues. But engaging politically is critical. And not just with coastal representatives, but people who are living in Indiana or my friend Connor who's here from Arkansas and other states that may not e extend out to the coast but have as much interest as we do who live on the coast of survival of our oceans. This is a tactic that I would highly recommend to people that we engage with folks. I don't care if they live in Iowa or in Alaska or Florida or Arizona. I actually joked with uh, Senator Reedy. He says, well, we were once an ocean. Yeah, a long time ago. Um, but the point is getting people connected from all across the political arena is critical. And because this is one of those issues that is nonpartisan, I don't care who you talk to, if you don't preserve the oceans today, it won't be around, as our, my friends in the Alaska Native community would say, for the next seven generations. That's how we have to think. It's not about the next day or the next session. It's seven generations from now. What do we leave for the next group, as pointed out these students that are here, what do they see as what they will inherit from us? And there's a lot of work still to be done. I mean, I think of in Alaska on acidification of the waters, uh, most people until recently understood what that even meant. We had people who in Congress have no clue what that is. But our job is to help educate them. Because the more they're educated on these issues, the more friends they are supportive of what we're doing. And when we talk about research that's necessary over multiple years, they see the value of investment in that. Because it is about making sure that this generation, next generation, can enjoy what we have in our, in our oceans. I'll end on this note, and that is, I like the point that Philippe said, and that is hope and opportunity. We sometimes forget that in public policy. We get in the grind of the day and constituents calling, committee meetings are going on, people complaining about everything in the world. And the thing that drives me when I was in public office, 22 years in public office, 
was when I had young people come visit me or people who were passionate about the issues. Because what they instilled in me when they left was not about what's wrong with what we're doing, but what the opportunities are and what they hoped for as they saw the next situation maybe on an issue on illegal fishing or fisheries in general or whatever it might be. You all being here tonight, first off, thank you for doing this. Thank you for being out here on... Someone said, I'm sorry about the weather. And I said, I'm from Alaska. It was five degrees. This is, hey, you know, rain? Who cares? Um, I'm all for it. Um, but for you to take your time to come out tonight to hear a little bit from us about why we're committed to this effort, why we're committed to Ocean Champions, why we think they're an incredible advocacy arm and political arm of helping our oceans make it to the next generation and the seven generations beyond, I thank you for that. What you do next is even more important. And I know David will talk more about that, but what you do next and how you commit more than what you're doing today is going to be critical because I always joke with people because most people think, oh, someone's doing that work, whatever that work is. Actually not. There's a lot of things that aren't being done because people assume other people are doing it. We have to assume in this room we are all champions because, one, you came here. Two, you're listening. Three, you are engaged in some form and some level of helping our oceans preserve themselves and help them in some way. So thank you for doing that. It's an honor to be part of this group. You will always find me. Even, and I won't, someday, maybe after dinner, I'll be happy to tell you some great stories with some of my former colleagues and their lack of knowledge uh, and how I used in, in, in uh, unique techniques to advise them and educate them. Uh, but it is about every day educating people about the importance of the oceans, even when they know or think it's not a priority to them but helping them understand it. And our public policymakers in Congress need this. And they need it not just from people like myself, but from you all. Because you have the impact of one, I like that this part on the bottom here. When you vote, you vote for oceans. You vote, you have impact. And politicians understand this. But having you be the advocate is even the better part of it all. So thank you very much. Thank you for being part of this. And I'll turn it over to David next, or whoever's going to introduce you. Good evening, everybody. Hope you're enjoying your dinner. Last time I was here at the uh, Aquarium of the Pacific, uh, I have to tell a story of my friend Jerry Schubel, who I haven't seen for a while, but I've known for 30 years. Jerry was here giving a lecture on the restoration of the Los Angeles River, how he was going to restore the LA River. And people were looking at him like, are you crazy? It's a concrete ditch. How are you going to restore the LA River? It's got a little trickle of water going down the middle. Well, Jerry, today, I uh, flew down from Monterey, and we broke out of the clouds on our approach into LAX. And I looked down, and, and the LA River was full of water, and it was flowing. So Jerry pulled it off. It's amazing. <laughs> Don't know quite how he did that, but he he had actually he restored the LA River, at least temporarily. Well, thank you all for being here tonight and for believing in ocean champions and caring so much about our oceans that you take the time to to support an organization like this. You're here, I suspect, because you recognize that it's going to take more than science and law to save our oceans. 
Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe we should believe in science and follow our laws. But we learned a long time ago that it takes more than that to save our oceans. We need our political leaders to believe that oceans are worth saving and do something about it. And that may be more difficult, as you've heard from the Senator and Philippe, than it should be. Um, but that's what Ocean Champions is all about. Ocean Champions is founded on the premise that science and law by themselves are not enough to save our oceans, and we need uh, the secret sauce, and that's politics. We need to convince our political leaders that um, saving our oceans is important, and that's why Ocean Champions exists. It's a simple mission. Um, you could be uh, forgiven for giving up on politics after what happened uh, last November. And a lot of people, I suspect, are done with politics for a while. But let me tell you one thing. Having worked in Washington, D.C. for so many years, it's time, when something like this happens, it's time to redouble our efforts. The brightest spot in November for me was that Ocean Champions sent more than 50 champions back to Washington, D.C., back to the Congress. That was a bright spot in an otherwise uh, rather, rather dim evening. Uh, we need those Ocean Champions. We're going to need them more than ever. Uh, if that new administration comes and tries to drill off the Pacific Coast or weaken the Endangered Species Act or do a whole raft of other things, we're going to need those champions like Senator Begich and his colleagues and Senator Whitehouse to stand up and say, wait a minute, not on my watch, you're not going to do that. So I have some people to thank for all of the, for that success. You know, uh, in the years since Ocean Champions was founded, the organization has enjoyed more than an 80% win-loss ratio in every single election, including this last one. It's really remarkable, and uh, we have a lot of people to thank for that. Let me uh, recognize the Ocean Champions board members who are here tonight. Rob Moyer, our founding chairman, is here all the way from Boston. Where is Rob? Thank you, Rob. Great, great job. Um, one of our newest board members, Vipe Desai. Thank you, Vipe, for all the hard work you put into this event. Terrific. Georgine Bradley is here, a brand new board member from Malibu. Uh, where, where's Georgine? Georgine, terrific job. She got off her boat to come here to be with us tonight on the, uh, on the land for a change. Ocean Champions, as you know, has an advisory board, too, of very important people chaired by Senator Begich. And Senator, thank you for all that you do for Ocean Champions and for our oceans. Um, we are especially honored tonight. We had to create an event in Southern California just to get Ann Earhart and the Marisla Foundation here with us. And they have an entire table tonight. It's not only Ann, but her daughter, Sarah Lowell, Beto Badolf, who we've worked with for many, many years. Thank you so much for all the support that you, Ann, and the, and the foundation and everyone has given to us. It means a lot to Ocean Champions. <laughs> Philippe. Thank you for being here and lending your support to Ocean Champions over the years. You really should be in the Antarctic with Ashland, but uh, we're glad you're here tonight, even though you'd probably be having a better time on, on and there really is a bucket list trip. Tom Raftikin is here on our advisory board as well, who's one of the, the great champions of sport fishing and progressive conservation. Thank you, Tom, for all you do. 
Barbara Page is here at the, at the head table tonight, um, who supported a very, very tough race in Silicon Valley and is smart enough to know, again, that science and law by themselves are not enough to save the oceans. Thank you, Barbara, for being so, uh, such an ocean champion yourself. I want to finish up by introducing the uh, Ocean Champions staff. Ocean Champions is a small organization, works really hard on not a lot of resources. There really should be more resources, uh, but thanks to, to you all, hopefully there will be. Ocean Champions staff, Chris Laughlin, the Managing Director of Ocean Champions. Where's Chris? Probably somewhere in the back. And Sandy Detellis, who, uh, who also works with Ocean Champions. We couldn't do it without you. You guys are, are terrific. Thank you. And now I want to introduce the founder and executive director of Ocean Champions, David Wilmot. I've known David for probably 30 years. I gave him one of his first jobs in Washington, D.C. And uh, a few years later, I was working at the Packard Foundation, and David, a scientist, came to me with Jack Stern, a lawyer, and said, uh, you know, we keep getting our butts kicked in the political arena. No matter how much science and law we have, what are we going to do about that? And I said, well, why don't you go ahead and study it, and I'll fund the study. So they went ahead and studied it and produced a report on, and the report said, every other organization that's effective in Washington, D.C. has a political arm, and the oceans don't have one. And I said, well, guys, you've named your own poison. You've got to do this. You've got to create ocean champions, and they did. So David has a PhD in oceanography from Scripps Institution of Oceanography just south of here. He's a, a Southern California uh, recovering scientist. He's a scientist who got politics, and thank heavens for that, because uh, he recognized early on that there was a gap that needed to be filled, and he filled it uh, in a, the most extraordinary way. And last year, David was recognized, along with Ocean Champions, uh, by the Peter Benchley Awards was given the award for excellence in public policy. So thank you, David, for all you do for our oceans. Oh, thank you, Mike. Thank you all for being here. Wow, I tell you, this has been spectacular. I feel that we have accomplished everything that I'd hoped to accomplish already. This has really set the stage, I believe, perfectly for what I had hoped we would get to for our, for our main course. Philippe, thank you, really could not have said, set the table better. Senator, thank you again for, again, setting this up. What I really wanted us to get together tonight to do was we all love the oceans. We're all engaged in the oceans in different ways. I know many of you, most of you in this room, some are deeply involved as advocates, donors, have expertise that go back decades. Others, we have high school students who are just falling in love with the oceans and getting engaged. I think we all love the oceans, care about the oceans, are looking for our way to engage, or looking for how our organization is going to be more effective going forward. But there's a lot of uncertainty right now. November 8th definitely threw some big question marks up. Therefore, I wanted to get together with the folks in Southern California so we could talk about what this means 
specifically, I would reach out to the champions who we have relationships and ask them what they see so that I could bring that back and share it. So my goal tonight is to hopefully share with you a little bit of information that you might not have had, or if it is information that you had maybe begins to have you think about it a little bit differently, see some different opportunities going forward, and most importantly, come away from a political discussion with a little bit of optimism. Because I think for all of us, political discussions over the past few months have not ended very optimistically. And Philippe really did set the stage that tonight is about optimism, and as the Senator said, it's about solutions. And I can tell you that even though I now get down in the mud of real electoral politics, and that's what I'm here to talk about, I can promise you it's going to be optimistic with real solutions, and I'm not living in fantasy land. So let me, let me get started. Okay, so let's set the stage. November 8th. This is going to be one of those days where our grandchildren ask us where we were when we heard the news, I'm, I'm afraid. Um, what happened? We all, know, we all know. Donald Trump was elected as president. The Republicans controlled the House and the Senate. Mike gave you the good news. 51 ocean champions elected. That's at, right up there with our high water mark. Let me break that down a little bit more so you guys know what that means. That basically was two years' worth of work for us coming to fruition. We work on a two-year cycle. The day after the election, we get to work on the next election coming up. We're structured in a way that allows us to do all the things that we need to do to help them get elected. That basically means money. We write them checks. We run campaigns to help them win. We do whatever it takes. Many of you in this room who support us, you help us make that happen. That's where our money goes. It goes to them so that they can win, so that they're in Congress, so they do the things that matter for our oceans. That's what it's all about. It's really that simple. 51 of them won. 14 first-time ocean champions. Eight first-time members of Congress. Two in the Senate, six in the House. Most of our elections have looked about like that. Six, eight brand new ocean champions each time. That's going to bear fruit down the road, I promise you. Lots of young people have been coming in each election with us. At some point when the House and the Senate flip, we're going to see a lot of young Democratic champions on there. We're bipartisan. We elected more Republicans than we have in recent elections. That's important. They control the House. They control the Senate. We were therefore working hard to elect more Republicans. We did on key committees in key areas. So that's what it looks like. To really understand if we're going to talk about what does this mean for our oceans, we're going to have to look back. What have we been dealing with prior to November 8th? In the few years leading up to this, we've had an Obama presidency with a Republican-controlled House and a Republican-controlled Senate. That's not new for us, okay? Now, in these last couple of years of the Obama presidency, we have gotten a tremendous amount of great actions out of the president. A lot of good, hard work many of the people in this room have been part of. Many in the Obama administration have been working for a long time. Those things were coming to fruition. 
I'll talk a little bit about some of those details because they matter. What might happen with a new administration with those actions? But let me tell you, we were also getting some action in Congress. Again, Republican-controlled Congress. Legislation moved. It was difficult. It was hard. Microbeads legislation. Harmful algal blooms legislation. Pirate fishing, which has already been mentioned. This has been important, modest one could say, compared to some of the larger pieces of legislation that we've wanted to move and that the champions have wanted to move. But the ocean champions in Congress, in the House and Senate, have worked hard and moved ocean legislation. We know how to do this in a Republican controlled. They know how to do it. When I use the we, I'm usually referring to we, the ocean community, but really it's them. That name, Ocean Champions, it was named for the champions in Congress. They're the ones that make this happen. They're the ones who get elected, who have the responsibility and the authority to pass the laws. <clears throat> now, before we pivot into back to the administration, this is something that is so critically important. We didn't make, it wasn't an accident that Ocean Champions chose to focus on, as Philippe put it, the 535 men and women in the Congress. That's our focus. We also work on the state and local level, and we'll be doing more of that in the future. That's important, and that can be powerful. We want to do a lot more of it. And we don't work at the presidential level. That's an entirely different, different discussion. Critically important, but there are reasons why we don't do it. But why do we work on Congress? Because Congress matters. When they do pass a law and the president signs it and it enters into force, it's hard to get rid of it. They're going to find that out with Obamacare, even when it's the number one thing they've spent almost eight years trying to get rid of. The only way they will likely get rid of it is to actually have a replacement that pretty much takes care of almost everything that was there before. So my point is, Congress matters so much because the laws they pass, that's what is essential. Our theory of change is that to save our oceans, we need federal legislation. And to get that federal legislation, it's hard. But there's no shortcut. We have to elect enough members of Congress to have a pro-ocean Congress to get them passed. No shortcut, no way around it. That's our mission, that's what we do. Now short of that, President Obama stepped up when he couldn't get those things through and he took a lot of action on his own. Thank goodness. He did that in multiple ways and, and it matters. So let me quickly just talk, touch on a few of them going forward. You might have heard about the monuments that were established, marine protected areas. He expanded in the one in the Pacific, out in the Hawaiian Islands, the largest in the world. He added the first ever in the Atlantic. This is using a law, the Antiquities Act, that the president has the authority to use. These are going to be very hard to be removed, okay? That is something that is a law, legislation that the president has the authority to use. He did some actions under offshore oil drilling that were administrative on one side, that's using your agencies, have them do stuff, regulations and law, uh, rules making and that type of thing. Very important, it's how we get things done, but it doesn't have the force of law. And he used a very small little part of a law that a lot of people weren't familiar with, 
And that'll work its way through the courts, and we'll find out about that one. And then he did a lot of things through what's called the executive act. He did, would use an executive order. And those things are signed with the stroke of a pen, and they are removed with the stroke of a pen. So what will this mean if we're looking at a Trump administration, just thinking about what happened in terms of on the Trump level? I'm not going to speculate on what Donald Trump might do. I don't think Donald Trump knows what he's going to do. And until I see the tweet, I don't think any of us know what, what he's going to do. And I haven't seen any tweets about, about the ocean yet. <clears throat> but, but what we, we can speculate is looking at the structure of these things, OK? The monuments, the one in the Pacific talking to people on Capitol Hill and friends in Washington, they feel it's safe. The one in the Atlantic, because there's not as strong congressional support, even though this was taken as a presidential action under antiquities, because there may not be as unanimous congressional support, that one might be vulnerable. So there may be some work needed there. Oil, offshore drilling, this is going to be a battle. The rulemaking part can be overturned and changed with a new administration, and we'll see how this little, how the, the law holds up. And then when it comes to executive actions, Again, they can be changed with the stroke of a pen, but because they don't have the force of law, are they really going to look at these things? Is it really necessary to take them down? If the most important action that President Obama took in this regard was the National Ocean Policy. It was one of the very first actions that he took. We had worked on this in Congress for years, couldn't get it moved. So we worked with the Obama transition team and had it all lined up when he came in as president, and he moved very quickly on it. All this did was organize 26 agencies to talk with each other, and it does more. But, but the bottom line is it, it, didn't have the, it doesn't have the force of law. It used existing legislation. So why would the Trump team or the Trump administration over They may not want to deal with this. If the agencies want to talk to each other and coordinate. That may not happen. The laws that Congress passed, harmful algal blooms, microbeads, the treaties that then have implementing language, pirate fishing, they're not going anywhere. That pirate fishing, by the way, I had the pleasure of being at the Our Ocean Conference that Secretary Kerry put together uh, last September. Several of you in the room were there as well. Um, that treaty uh, has entered into force. So this basically has not just been a treaty that the United States signed that had no teeth. This treaty is in force internationally with teeth making a difference already in ports around the world and is going to have a huge impact on shutting down pirate fishing. These things work. And the United States was a big part of that. The United States was essential, as always, our leadership on the, it's not going away for all their talk of renegotiating international treaties. Okay, so I think the important thing I, I want to emphasize here is even though we don't know what it might look like, there's no reason for us to assume the worst of what might happen, but we have to be prepared and anticipate knowing what the structures are. I know that the groups who do offshore drilling are already up and prepared, and they're getting ready for that battle. It, and we'll be ready for it, as are the folks who were involved in the monument, as are the folks who are involved in national ocean policy. 
and that's going to be important, as are the champions in Congress who will be essential to helping protect these things as well. Now, what about the most of the talk that we hear about the nominees are up at the cabinet level. We don't have any appointees down at the lower levels. We don't know who will be running agencies that matter for the oceans. And these people matter. These are things that we pay a lot of attention to. We were expecting a Clinton administration, and we would, many of us would have been intimately involved on the transition team. Uh, people in this room probably would have been invited to take positions in the Clinton administration. That's not the way it is. In many cases, uh, the environmental community, the ocean community is, is not deeply involved in the discussions that are going on. At best, we're collecting information. So there are a lot of names that are getting floated that we're aware of. I have to tell you, uh, head of NOAA, these important positions, there's a range from surprisingly good to predictably frightening, but the surprisingly good are good. These are qualified, experienced, competent individuals who care about these issues. They may not agree philosophically on everything in this, the way that we do, but they often have experience in, and care about these issues. So even when we're looking at the people at the top, a Tillerman, the Secretary of State, or Ross with commerce. Commerce oversees oceans. It makes no sense. It, it, it absolutely doesn't. But that's where oceans are, under commerce. Um, you know, first blush, you would think, well, this can't be good for the oceans. But as an aside, I was talking to a senator the other day, and they reminded me, it turns out several of these nominees are supportive of Law of the Sea. We've been trying to pass the Law of the Sea Treaty. The United States has never, the Senate has not, uh, what's the word, Michael? Ratified. The Law of the Sea Treaty. It's entered into force internationally, enough countries have, but we've not ratified it in the United States. The thought that we might have people in a Trump administration to help get us over the hump in a, because the Republicans in the Senate are blocking it is an interesting thought. I put these things out simply to let you realize that there, there sometimes can be unexpected consequences. And again, a good reason to not look at the, the potential worst, worst of this. So <clears throat> this is where we're coming from. The other piece I'd like to highlight is we've been here before. One of the reasons that I'm not as maybe as nervous about this as I should be, we have been in a position where a president was elected who really didn't prioritize our issues with a Congress that didn't as well. 2004. Ocean Champion's first electoral cycle was 2004, and that's similar to what we're dealing with here. In that election, most people were talking about a generation of Republican control in the House and if you'll recall, we had a, a, a swing that occurred in the House and the Senate right afterwards. So there are, there are unexpected consequences that we're unaware of. We don't have perfect information. There are, reasons, there are reasons for optimism. Now, more importantly, let's look at Congress. Been talking to a lot of our champions up there to try to get a sense of where they're going. Um, our approach, uh, Senator Begich 
spoke to this a little bit. Our approach to how we deal with these issues, um, we all know what the important issues are facing our oceans. There really hasn't been much debate on this for decades, whether we go back to a report I worked on when I was at the National Academy of Sciences in the 90s, all the way to the Pew Commission report of the U.S. Ocean Commission report, many of the exact same issues, and the solutions are pretty well known. The issue really is about political will and, and why ocean champions exist to get that political will that we need. But also we do the reverse engineering. So I spent a lot of time in the past couple of months talking to members about what is important to them, what they believe, and what they see as the opportunities and the challenges. And so I thought it would be valuable, after talking with leaders such as Senator Whitehouse, Senator Schatz of Hawaii, Senator Cantwell of Washington, and others who will be leading not just on the issues, but in key committees, and this matters. These committees still will be doing their work. Senator Leahy, who is the new ranking member of the Appropriations Committee, I promise you, they will still spend a lot of money in Congress. If they do nothing else, they will still spend a lot of money. We can still influence that the money goes to the right programs. They will have influence on a lot of these things. So let me quickly just share, this isn't supposed, I, I can't cover them all. Uh, it'll pique your interest in areas, follow up with me afterwards. Obviously we can go into much more. But I wanna share with you a few things that they raised of where there are opportunities. Plastics, plastic pollution, marine debris, both on the domestic level and the international level. This came up in multiple offices and often very much near the top. Corals, the coral reauthorization, obviously Hawaii and Florida, this is uh, going to be an issue that they're gonna look at. This would be modest. This isn't going to be something that can be complete and over the top, but it's also something that they're not gonna completely shy away from. Fish, sustainable fisheries, a huge issue for us. Well, we've been, we're basically looking at a reauthorization. We have a great fish law in place. We have the Magnuson-Stevens Act that is working extremely well on many, many fronts. We've been nervous about opening it up because there is a little problem down in the Gulf of Mexico with one fishery and it could really wreak havoc. Well, it looks like that problem may be, may be solved in a different way. If that's the case, we may not have the fear of opening up the bigger bill. If the bigger bill gets opened up, believe it or not, we might even be able to strengthen it a little. If not, we can make sure we don't open it up. Uh, what are a couple of the other issues that harmful algal blooms? This has been a priority issue for ocean champions. It's still coming up in many of the offices we talk about. Clinton campaign, for example, other than climate change, it was their top issue in Florida because last summer when they were campaigning in a swing state, there was a toxic algal bloom on both the Atlantic coast of Florida and the west coast of Florida that was devastating the state. So we're hearing from, and these blooms are occurring all over the, all over the country. So we're hearing from our champions who led and realized we passed a standalone harmful algal bloom bill that had bipartisan support uh, it, two Congresses ago, and the same folks are coming back to us saying, we can do more of this. So these issues and others are coming up. When I contact and talk to these champions, there's no shortage of issues. They're not saying we can't do anything. To Senator Begich's point, that's not what they're saying. They have a long list. It was incredible. 
They recognize it has to be modest change in many cases. We can't go get it all, but they're ready to go do the work. In some cases, we're going to see improvements on committees, and this matters. Senator Rubio was the chairman of the Ocean Committee on Oceans, the Subcommittee on Oceans and the Commerce Committee. Senator Rubio was a little busy the past couple of years, losing a presidential election. He couldn't care less about the oceans. Well, now we're going to likely get Senator um, S Sullivan from Alaska. We much would prefer Senator Begich from Alaska. But uh, there are advantages to having an Alaska senator because they do, even the Republican senator from Alaska, who is not an ocean champion, but I tell you what, they do understand oceans and care about oceans in a different way. We'll get more hearings. More issues will come up. Likely more things will move. This is what I'm hearing from members. This isn't, again, I'm not trying to push my agenda up here. I want to share with you the kind of encouraging things that I'm hearing from them. And again, I have to repeat, Senator Leahy, ranking member on the Appropriation Committee. Senator Leahy is an ocean champion, a very close friend of ocean champions. We are thrilled because I cannot repeat enough, if there is one thing that Congress will do well, and I will guarantee you this is from the most conservative Freedom Caucus member on, they will spend a lot of money. I don't care what any of them campaign on. They will spend a lot of money, and we work hard behind the scenes to make sure that the right programs are getting as much of that money as humanly possible. A lot of the things that I could would be talking about tonight, it's a money play. So the Pacific Monument, Senator Schatz, for example, the pushback from op opponents of monuments is you put them in place and then you don't do anything with them. You don't manage them, you don't enforce them. Senator Schatz is working to get money to do just that, not just for the Pacific. He wants to work to get money for the Atlantic as well. That's a money play that will do good things for conservation, of course, but it also starts to get at the heart of some of the arguments against why we do these things and how we do them. So let me end that piece of it there, just touch on one thing. Why no discussion of climate? Probably the biggest issue that the planet is facing. It's a good question. It's an important question. It's one that we struggle with a lot. Um, but the answer is really pretty simple. Blue issues, ocean issues, the kinds of things that I've talked about here, water quality, coastal water quality, fisheries, plastic debris, wildlife issues. I didn't even bring up a lot of wildlife issues that remain in play. Those are, are what, what we know are ocean issues, that if we in this room do not continue to work those issues, they're not going to get done. We have to do those. And the champions who are ocean champions in Congress, they are who we depend on to make sure those things get done. They're not particularly partisan for the most part. They're not. It's one of the great benefits we have. People do not throw us out of offices or refuse to see us on almost any ocean issue. It's not seen as part of partisan. They're typically more regional, constituent service type of things. We have liberal Democrats who are terrible on some ocean issues, conservative Republicans who are great on some ocean issues. That's a benefit for us. As you all know, that is the antithesis of climate change. Climate change is ideological and partisan. 
We could debate forever whether it should be this way, why it happened, who's to blame. None of that matters. Equally importantly, there are strong, powerful forces that are there on climate. The, the green environmental community, I consider us the blue, the green, they're there. They, they have this fight. They, they are there. They're ready. They're going for it. From Ocean Champions' perspective, there's just not a, a unique key role that we can play that they're not taking care of. We know the impacts of climate, direct and indirect, on oceans, of course. And we can still work on some of these issues, the indirect. Acidification, storm impacts, sea level rise. Those are things we can still talk about. Republicans don't throw us out talking about acidification. We can do it. We can talk about a lot, of, but not climate. There, that, that is something that we just have to be very, very careful on. It's not that we aren't supportive on the issue, et cetera, but, but it is something that we, we are a little careful on. Now, every one of our champions minus, you know, maybe one or two Republicans, all are strong champions on climate. I mean, it's just, it's how it plays out. But a couple of our Republicans probably aren't. Um, um, but for the most part, even our Republicans are, you know, are strong climate folks. But I did want to point that out, that we, we are not oblivious to the biggest threat facing our, our planet. And we work indirectly, as I say, on issues such as acidification, sea level rise. And, and those are things that, of course, are on the list. Um, and many of our champions, just to, so you know, this is how they approach it as well. Uh, even, you know, very strong ocean, climate champions do work on other issues with Republicans and agree to not bring up climate in the preamble of a bill, et cetera. Um, so let me, uh, you know, let me close it there. I, I know we've run a little bit late tonight. Um, I, I have to, for those of you who know me and have, have seen me give talks, I, I, I have to end it with my, my take-home message of the phrase I love to, to use of elections matter. And it's important that I end it on this, that for those of us who care about our oceans, it is essential that we we support and do what is necessary to reward the politicians who are helping us to ensure healthy and thriving oceans. In particular, getting them elected and reelected. And we hold those accountable who are doing things to destroy our oceans. In particular, we defeat them. Good ocean policy is essential to healthy and thriving oceans. And good ocean policy needs these champions in Congress. It is such a simple model. We didn't create it. I often flippantly say we're the NRA of the oceans. That's what we want to be. I wish, I wish we were the NRA for the oceans. Um, but I think you know what I mean when I say that. Um, that's what we need to be. That's what we have to be. That's what the oceans need for us to be effective. That's what coastal communities need. That's what people need. And that's what we're going to deliver with your help. Uh, so many of you in this room have helped make our successes possible, directly and indirectly. So many of you have been part of the successes on Capitol Hill that I've talked about. Um, this is a collective effort. I hope you realize 
uh, in, in what you're hearing tonight. There are unique ways that you guys can engage with us. You all don't need to do politics. We got it. We can do it. There are ways for charitable organizations and C3s to engage with us. And just to be clear, if there are any spies, the Marisla Foundation does not fund Ocean Champions. And Earhart does. I want to be clear. Ser seriously. I mean, the, the, but, but the key is we do indeed need the collective power. Grassroots, communications, all the things that a lot of folks are doing combined with the electoral political piece. Together, we'll do it. We're going to do it. So please leave with a little bit of optimism. We're going to beat this. We're going to do well. We're going to keep making progress. Thank you all for everything. Thank you, David. Thank you, Senator Begich and Philippe. I hope you're all seeing the ocean in a different light and the possibilities ahead. The evening might be over, but our work is far from done. If we combine passion with strategy, I have no doubt we can achieve great victories for our oceans. On behalf of Ocean Champions, I promise we'll keep you all updated in the weeks and months ahead. But like President Obama said in his farewell speech, it's time to roll up these sleeves and get to work. Together, we're ready to do great things for our oceans, and I know of 71 senators and congressional leaders, your champions serving in Washington, D.C., who are too. I invite you to join us. Let's vote the ocean. Have a great evening.